0: So when, uh, when I was in my twenties and, in early thirties, I was a, a pretty big fan of, of New Year's resolutions. I used to create one every year. I would write them down and I would have multiple resolutions and I would oftentimes just keep the paper somewhere or have this outline of, of resolutions. What I was going to do that year. And they were pretty similar every year. I was exercise a little more or get to the gym or maybe take on some hikes or, maybe trying to eat a little better, you know, pretty similar throughout the years. And um, some of you may have even made resolutions this year yourself. Uh, mine this year, I uh, didn't write it down, and I'm mostly resolute, but I'm going to try to get to the gym a little more this year. That was my plan. So that's my unwritten resolution this year. You know, and the good news is about resolutions is they, they give us an opportunity for we think about new commitments or maybe improvements and things that we hope to do throughout the year, and nothing's inherently wrong with that. Those are good things, but we, we I think we often set ourselves up for failure with resolutions sometimes, because the reality is, is that by February 1st, the stats show that one-third of resolutions have been broken. One-third of people don't make it to February 1st, so about a month. So, again, nothing inherently wrong with resolutions, but... I think we often set ourselves up for failure with resolutions, I and mean, it's another opportunity to feel kind of guilty, or maybe I, I've blown it in another area of my life, or you might even say, well, there I go again, not completing one more thing, right? So, but this week, as I thought about the word resolution, I found myself saying that I'm not sure I need a resolution, but I need an actual revolution. I need a, a big change. I don't need to... Add something new or try a new thing. I need a whole new me. I need a new me from the inside out. And so, well, again, resolution is this idea of adding something good or something, you know, maybe different or or new, so that we can be better. Revolution really takes it one step further. Revolution means radical change. It means becoming a new creation. And so, this morning, I've called our message "New Year's Revolution." In our bulletin, you'll see that uh, there's a different text there, but we're going to look at James 4, 1-10 this morning. But this morning, the name of our message is New Year's Revolution. And we're going to resume our our message in, in James, our series in James this morning. And that's really, this is really what the, James tells the church. He says, we're not going to add something new as followers of Jesus that we want to become a whole brand new creation. And so if you have your Bibles with you, Go ahead and turn to James 4, 1 through 10. We're going to look at James 4, 1 through 10. All right, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source, your pleasures, that wage war in your members. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteress. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he, God, will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Again, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So our passage falls in what I call problem and solution theology. James says, here's a problem, and he points to God and says, God is the solution. And James is reminding the church 2,000 plus years ago, just like today, that the problem is sin. And while James hits on the influence of the enemy slightly, and we know that Satan, devil, is the author of sin. Jesus, James hammers home and he says the real enemy is right here. It's found with inside our sin nature. It's our own sin is the real enemy that James points to. And so in verse 1, James says what? He says the source of quarrels and conflicts is found inside of you. It's this rhetorical question, kind of this reflection question like, Do you not know? Do you not see? Yes, we have an enemy, the devil. He prowls the world, prowls the earth like a lion looking to devour. But in this context, in this sense, James says, the source is you. The real enemy is found right there in your hearts. And it's a question that James, of course, again, it's rhetorical, but he knows the answer to it. But he's looking for the church and looking for God's people to reflect on kind of this reality. You know, James is asking the church to really look in the mirror and look at the source of sin. You know, and Looking in the mirror is not an opportunity for us to point our finger somewhere else or to look at our neighbor or the person next to us, but to do just that. Look in the mirror and address the log in our own eye that Jesus talks about. So, The, the whole point this morning is that James is looking for God's people to Again, look in the mirror, but also take some personal accountability and personal responsibility for the role that sin is playing in their lives and the lives of the church. And accountability is not a real popular word—not a real popular word these days. You know, we can have a hard time looking in the mirror. You know, we want to—you know—it's human nature to want to point blame at others or point to somewhere else or say, "Oh, my, you know, it's my neighbor; it's somebody else's fault." That's why I am what I am. We want to pin our faults on, you know, again, genetics or somewhere else. Or I got a bad night's sleep. Or, you know, it's pizza. Pizza made me do it. You know, almost as if we want to say, you know, I don't really have any control over it. It is, it is the way it is, right? I just kind of am. You know, I inherited Uncle Leroy's temper. So that's just kind of it is what it is, right? So um, I don't actually have an Uncle Leroy, but I figured I would use a, a name that is non family member. But, but you know, God's word, as we know, Paul says, do we keep on sinning so that we take advantage of God's grace? No. So take some personal accountability and responsibility is precisely what James says. And sin, again, in the first century, was having such a profound impact on the church that you know, James, again, he uses as much destructive and sobering language as he possibly can. That's one of the things we see all throughout James is he uses some really sobering kind of destructive language. You know, it's kind of like smelling salts. He wants to wake the church up. And so three times in three verses, James has this cause and effect language in in his passage. And he uses the word so three separate times in the first three passages. So here we go. You are envious, so you fight and quarrel you do not have, so it's entirely possible that you might murder or kill to get what you want. You know, the word so is really a reminder, I think, for us that our decisions, our sin, it has an impact on not only us, but those around us. You know, sin doesn't exist somewhere in this you know corner over here in this dark place, never to be seen or or uh, um, touched or or you know, sin is, is there's often consequences, and consequences in our own lives, but certainly in the consequences of lives of others in our family, in our churches. We don't live in a vacuum, and so our decisions have an impact on others, and so James James is saying. There's a cause and effect relationship to your sin. And, he's, and again, he's warning the local church. He's warning you know, us that sin can destroy everything that we hold dearly. It can destroy what happens in our church walls. It can destroy what happens in our homes, in our workplaces, our families and marriages. There's a cause and effect to our decisions in this life. And again, James is saying, look in the mirror. And the third so it's kind of an interesting so. Yeah, verse three. You ask for money and possessions and do not receive, because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you will spend your money on the pleasures of this life. You know, sometimes you'll hear believers or, or followers of Jesus might complain about well, God is not blessing me in the way that I would wish. It doesn't look like I'd like it to look. You know, God's not granting my requests. I'm asking the Lord and I'm just not seeing it. Not in the way that I would have expected or wished. And I'm still not convinced that God's bottom line desire is for us to be healthy and wealthy and wise. Oftentimes we get have this understanding that as long as I'm you know praying and praying for the right things and asking him you know, where, where, where's that Tesla I asked for, God? It was on my Christmas list. Where is that? And that's not the reality. You know, James says, your prayers are selfish, is what he says. You know, James says that you ask for things not with God's purposes in mind, but you ask for things with your purposes in mind. You ask for money so that you can fill, fulfill your desires, your needs, Your prayer life is not about bringing glory to God's kingdom, but your prayer life is about your kingdom, is what James says. You know, there's no shortage of stories that circulate out there about people that have, you know, come into money and fame and riches, and only to have lost everything or to lose everything that they that they hold so important. There was this term that was coined a few years ago, and it's called uh, the lottery curse. You may have heard that term before, but It's this idea that those that win the lottery often, they come to ruin. They often lose everything. Back in 2013, I I ran across this story this week, or it's a 2013 story. There was this aspiring uh, pastor in Texas named Billy Bob Harrell. I think it's a real name, but um, Billy Bob, it's a good one. And as the story goes, Billy Bob got into some some pretty hard times. Uh, He was Desperate to pay the bills and to provide for his family, and um, he was a frequent lottery player. And Billy Bob, he just happened to win thirty-one million dollars. He won the Texas lottery and won thirty-one million dollars. And you know, for Billy Bob, this was the big one. This was it. The ship had come in. And he finally found a way to make ends meet to provide for his family. You know, his, his money troubles were behind him, but he had a he had a whole new set of friends. He had people asking for. Um, handouts and he was giving money away to friends and family and, you know, he was giving to the church. Um, the request for help didn't, didn't stop coming in, in Billy Bob's life and he didn't invest well. As you might predict, he didn't invest or save and, you know, the constant demand for his time and his energy and all these new friends and all these new, you know, demands on his uh, life were just overwhelming. And Billy Bob ended up losing his wife. His kids were estranged. And then one day, uh, back in uh, 2015, Billy Bob was supposed to go to dinner. He never made it. Billy Bob ended up taking his own life. And uh, so less than two years after winning this $31 million lottery, Billy Bob took his life. And before he died, he was quoted as saying this. He said, winning the lottery was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And I think God in His grace and His mercy, I think He provides precisely all that we really need. Maybe not all that we really want or what we think we want, but God gives us all that we need. He knows our hearts. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we might do with some sort of fame or fortune. And maybe God's desire is to keep us in a place of absolute humility. You now, Maybe God's grace is really a blessing in disguise. Maybe if we don't have the so-called riches in this life or the material wealth, maybe it's, again, maybe a blessing in disguise. I heard a, a pastor and a professor a number of years ago. I was at this conference and um, this is one of the things that I, I'd never forgotten about what, what he had to say. And he said, if your decision-making, if your sole motivation in your decision-making is about money, or power, or earthly status, your motivation is in the wrong place. If your sole motivation is around those one of those three things, and I've never forgotten that, and use it as a grid for the decisions that I try to make in my life. So in our prayer lives, in your prayer life, the question is, is your prayer life more about glorifying yourself, or is it about glorifying God?